0: Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers and also your local library. So go get a copy. Not the library's copy. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas.
0: And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out.
1: And on today's episode, of course, we're going to head into the pub to cover some of the beer news, since it's been a while since we had any beer news to talk about. Oh, wait, no. It's been a while since we've had the chance to talk about beer news. Then, of course, we're going to go over to the library. We're going to talk about a couple of things we've been either reading or watching, just a couple of nice little stories. And then into the brewery where Denny is going to taste my beer. And I lived through it. I know. No sickness. I'm pleased. (laughs) Yeah. And, of course, we'll give you a quick tip something other than beer, and get you on your merry
0: brewing way. But before we do any of that, here's some messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to ExperimentalBrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Home Brewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. The BrewDeck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and
1: suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Now through May 31st, get a quarter pound of H.A. Zamba Hops When you join or renew your American Homebrews Association membership with promo code ZAMBA. That's Z-A-M-B-A. ZAMBA. Get your offer details at homebrewsassociation.org slash experimental.
0: Welcome back. As always, we have a few announcements to start with, and Drew's going to kick them off.
1: Yep, and of course my announcement is, if you didn't pay attention to your podcast feed, last week we had another episode all about mild, and only this time it wasn't just me talking about it. Yes, it's me and Dave Satula, the author of Mild, talking about mild and why you should brew and drink more mild. Brew and drink more mild. Can you say
0: mild a couple more times, do you think?
1: I might. I might mildly say mild a few more mild times.
0: (laughs) Also, we want to remind you about the AHA Homebrew Con, June 23rd through 25th in Pittsburgh. Uh, For a variety of reasons, neither one of us is going to be able to make it this year. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't if you can. Uh, It's a great party. Uh, It may be a little bit different this year due to various health and safety precautions. But it should still be a great time. So uh, hopefully we'll see you at next year's.
1: Go have some beer in Pittsburgh, please. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is.
0: We're supporting an organization called Canines for Warriors. They take rescue dogs and train them to be companions and helpers for veterans who have physical or PTSD issues after serving. I mean, it's like it's a great cause. Go to our Web page. You got one more month to do it uh, before we kick into a new charity. So go to ExperimentalBrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and toss us a few bucks that we can pass along to them.
1: And now, time for a beer.
0: All right. We're going to get out of here, and we'll see you over in the pub when we come back. Longer days and brighter skies inspire Y-East Laboratories' spring release. Get ready for your next brew day with the flexibility of our Longer Days private collection. 1217 West Coast IPA calls for a fruity edition of grapefruit, mango, or kumquat. Go a step further by kettle souring first, then pitching this neutral, easy-to-use strain. 3191 Berliner Weiss blend is ready to break tradition with a variety of fruit and herb flavors to complement its bread and lacto character. Strawberry and rhubarb, pineapple and mango, or mixed berries will bring bright flavors and color to your Goza or Wild Specialty Ale. Balance out your creativity with one of our favorite styles, a classic Kolsch using 2575 Kolsch 2. This versatile strain is favored among professional and homebrewers alike in any season and will be your go-to for its rich flavor and soft malt finish. Visit our brand new website at yeastlab.com for more inspiration, tips, and recipes to pair with these strains. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. Welcome back to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere, someplace in cyberspace. We're having a couple beers today, and Drew, what are you drinking?
1: Uh, I'm drinking a beer that I've had many, many times before down here in Los Angeles. I'm having Hangar 24's Betty IPA. Now, Betty IPA is a throwback IPA, or at least it used to be. I mean, it started life as, I think, one of the flagships for Hangar 24. And, you know, it's just a good, clean, Drinking West Coast IPA. A couple years ago, they switched to using Voss Quike to make it. I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but uh, at least this last time when I had it, it was clean, it was crisp, it was delicious. It did have a little bit of an orangey character to it, but none of the sort of quikey phenolics I'm used to thinking about, right? And the other reason, of course, that I have to mention the Hangar 24 is because I had that beer while I was doing my favorite thing, which was sitting down and watching a minor league baseball game. Now, all <laughs> right. Uh, so one of my goals for this year is to try and make it to all eight of the home stadiums in the California League, which is now these days after all the reformation that happened a couple years back. And I'm looking at you, Manfred. I'm not very happy about it. Uh, all eight of the California teams became low A, so single A ball, and uh, but still great opportunity to go watch games where everybody's having fun. The stakes aren't ridiculously high, and the seats are relatively cheap. Are we talking beer
0: or baseball? Both.
1: <laughs> I, I would highly encourage, if, if you don't get your hands on Hangar 24, I understand, but I would highly encourage you to go check out your local independent or affiliated minor league baseball team.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely so. There are tons of fun.
1: Uh, and speaking of the things that we've had in the past.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm I'm revisiting an old favorite, too. Uh, we are finally beginning to get out of our cold, wet weather here. Uh, tomorrow, it's going to be all the way up to 72. <laughs> so, uh, anticipating summer, I'm revisiting one of my absolute favorite beers, Freem Pilsner. This is a 4.9% beer with 35 IBUs, and I love that about it because it really... packs a punch for a light beer. The 35 IBUs make it crisp and snappy, which is exactly what Freem says about it. That's Uh, Uh, that's That's what people say about you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, at least I'm not fat and unfiltered. Well, that's not true either. Uh, you know, this is they use both Gambrinus and Weirman uh, Pilsner malts in it, and I've been having a conversation on one of the forums with a guy who is uh, kind of doubting that there's really much difference between malts and why would you pay for, uh, you know, different malts of the same variety. And uh, here's a good example. Obviously, Freem finds something that uh, works when they combine the Gambrinus and Weirman German uh, Pilsners, uh, getting something different from each one. There's also a Bit of carafoam in there, a little bit of acidulated, which is not real uh, surprising. The hops are Pearl, Saphir, Tetanang, and Spalt Select, and uh, I really like all of those hops. Uh, It it is a nice, refreshing beer, and this is a good place to uh, plug a book by our good friend Dave Carpenter. He has a book out just called Lager. A great book about the history of lagers and how to make them, and he's got a recipe for freeing pills in there, which I haven't made yet, but that's one of the reasons I bought the book, so I guess I'm going to have to eventually.
1: There you go. Hopefully you'll be able to come somewhat close to the target.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I have gotten over trying to clone beers uh, long ago, so if I can just get something that's kind of recognizable as what I'm going for, an homage, as it were, I'm plenty good with that.
1: There you go. Homage away. It's It's not plagiarism if you give credit. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now it's time to talk a little bit about the beer news. As we said, it's been a few weeks since we've had an opportunity to, so lots have happened, but here are a couple of things that caught our eye. The first one is Marcus Baskerville, who you'll remember is the co-founder of Weathered Soul Brewing Company in Texas. And also the, the sort of force behind the black is beautiful movement that happened last year, ended up giving uh, $3 million to local black businesses. Um, he has teamed up with RAR to put together a program. It is the Harriet Baskerville uh, Incubation Program, and it's named after his grandmother. And he's teaming up with RAR Malting, and a lot of you out there use RAR Malts for your beers. And they are seed funding a $100,000 to bring a, about, I think it's 12 brewers in the initial year, up to the new Weathered Souls location in Charlotte, North Carolina, And go through, I mean, essentially a a whole crash course in here's how you run a brewery from step to turn. And so they say here, uh, participants will learn about brewery maintenance, brewing beer on professional equipment, malting, analytical tests related to brewing practices, yeast propagation, cell counting, viability and health, and how to create, finance, and market a sustainable brewing program. So... Marcus has said, and Ryers also said in here, the, the whole idea behind the program is that they want to make sure that they can give folks who are uh, black, indigenous, or people of color, otherwise uh, a sort of a, a step up in order to actually be able to get into the brewing game and get into the game with some knowledge. Because uh, they did point out that of the nearly 9,000 breweries that the Brewer Association tracks, only about 65 of them are black owned. So just a little kind of boost uh, get, get that thing going, uh, help kind of boost up the number of women brewers that are out there. Cause that's only about seven and a half percent of the industry. So we'll see what that can happen. But at the same time, God love what Marcus is doing there. Yeah. You know, he's just, he's, he's got his game working towards constantly improving this stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh, that is really cool.
1: Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to give some support, go buy some weathered souls beer. You can get it both in Texas and uh, soon. I don't think the Charlotte location's open yet. But uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and you can go uh, go watch what he's doing.
0: Cool, that's very cool, man, uh, and good on him and good on Rar both.
1: And our second story comes from well, a blast from the past and a revisit. So if you've been around the beer world for a while, you will have remembered all about beer, which was a beer magazine that launched in ooh 1979, uh, talking about beer. Oddly enough, for something called all about beer. And All About Beer lasted until the mid-20-teens, like 2014, 2015 or so. And then was sort of unceremoniously shuttered. And a good portion of that work was sort of lost and sort of vaporized behind web firewalls. And the team of John Hall, who we talked about in the last program about just having released his brand new cookbook, who used to work for All About Beer, used to work for Craft Beer and Brewing, which has kind of been all around the industry for a long period of time. And Andy Crouch, who has been a longtime beer writer, uh, who, um, well, I mean, like we've worked together on Beer Advocate, uh, the magazine back when that was a the thing. They've partnered together with themselves and Pro Brewer and a couple of other folks to bring back All About Beer. And so via uh, Beer Edge, they're actually going to bring that up and uh we'll be able to get access to a whole very long generation of material that has until recently been lost. And that includes stuff from the early days, including talk about my homebrew called the Maltose Falcons back in the day. So really cool to see that All About Beer is coming back, that, uh, that it's out of bankruptcy, and we'll see what sort of shape and form this is going to take. Obviously, there's a Patreon, and they have their social medias up and running. So go and uh give all about beer a good chance to read.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know, anything that John is involved with involving beer or food it turns out now too is going to be great. So uh, you know, give it a listen.
1: There you go. All right, and then just to kind of keep the the train running, <laughs> you you you'll remember
0: wasn't what was it
1: last episode? Two of no, two episodes ago. Where we were talking to uh, Mr. R3, Ray Ricky Rivera, and talking about the game that he's putting together to get Norwalk off the ground and make that happening. He has a piece that just came out in Good Beer Hunting uh, called I See You, The Evolution of the SoCal Cerverceros. You remember we talked about the SoCal Cerverceros when they were initially formed. All about, you know, running a Latino homebrew club here in LA. I mean, look, if you're going to run a Latino homebrew club, LA is probably the right place to do it and what really has been happening. And in this, he covers the whole evolution of the Sevaceros, including the Sevaceros, uh who we talked about, and actually when you heard the episode that we have with Tyler and Lori, they're both members of the Sevaceros, and actually seeing what's happening and what impact they're doing in the professional brewing world. So give, go give that a read at Good Beer Hunting. It's always good to see uh, uh Ray getting out there and spreading the love.
0: Indeed, man. I'm really, really a fan of that guy after hearing his story.
1: Yep. And our final story here in the pub for today, it's a bit of a throwback in actually kind of two ways. So vaunted brewer of brewers, Brian Hunt. He's been kind of this weird, almost hermitish kind of brewer, uh, kind of hanging out there up in Santa Rosa, Windsor, California, with Moonlight Brewing Company forever and a day. Uh, he's been, and when I say forever and a day, I really do mean forever and a day, like back in the late 90s, I believe, is when he founded the brewery. But also one of those guys where, if you know about his beer, people go and hunt it down, particularly things like his uh, death and taxes, and uh, which is what it's a Schwartz beer, and his reality check-style uh style pilsner, two of the best loggers I think I've ever had. And Brian, as he was sort of looking around for how to either expand the business or get it on better footing, quite a few years back, sold 50% of the company to Loganitas, right? And so here comes Loganitas because he got along great with Tony McGee. And then Loganitas, of course, sold 50% to Heineken and then eventually sold 100% to Heineken. And that kind of left Brian in this weird, weird world where he owned half the brewery and Heineken owned the other half. And of course, Brian's also getting older and he really does want to get the, the, the brewery sort of established for the next generation keep it going. The brewery is 30 years old now. And he, uh, had to figure out how to solve that problem of Heineken's ownership. And the way that he solved that problem of Heineken's ownership was he found a buyer. And that buyer is none other than Patrick Rue, formerly of the brewery down here in Orange County area. And currently the owner of Erosion Winery and Erosion Brewing up there in the Napa Valley and Sonoma area. And Patrick agreed and worked out a deal with Heineken to buy that 50% stake that Lagunitas had bought that Heineken now owned. And so now Patrick is going to be an advisor to the whole thing, and they're going to work together to sort of set up Moonlight for you know its next chapter. And the good news is that yeah they're keeping their the longtime brewers that have been there. Nothing is really changing, really, at the end of the day, except for now Moonlight is back to being fully independent.
0: That's very cool, man. It sounds like a really good setup.
1: Yeah, and, uh, yeah, so Moonlight was 1992. Loginius was 1993. Moonlight is still, obviously, very, very small. But, man, if you can get your hands on Reality Check or Death and Taxes,
0: you really should, because those are
1: fantastic beers.
0: Yeah, um, I've never seen them up here, but uh, I'll keep my eyes out.
1: Yeah, and By the way, I did ask Patrick, okay, so hey, now that you've bought into a bigger brewery, what does that mean for the winery and the smaller brewery? And he's like, oh, no, they're still sep- uh, separate entities and they're still going to be operating. But the nice thing is now erosion has access to a bigger system if it needs it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, man. <laughs> there we go. All right. I think that's enough talk in the brewery. Let's finish these beers and get on going.
0: Yeah, let's uh, head on over to the library, talk about a few reedy-type things. Uh, We'll be right back. The ultimate all-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high powered built in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com. Welcome back. We're sitting here in the library surrounded by all this musty, musty stuff that Drew likes to keep around for some reason. Uh, And we're going to be talking about some interesting reading that we've done recently. And uh, the first one is about a new style that isn't a style, right?
1: Right. So this started to make the rounds, I think, about a week ago. And if you haven't ever checked out the Brewing with Breeze website, uh Brice maintains a, a running active blog there to talk about you know various things that you can do in brewing. Now obviously all sort of centered around, hey, aren't Breeze products are great, use our Breeze products. Uh however, I I won't fault them for that because of course. Um and they they put up an article and I have to admit the immediate reaction that I saw from a lot of people was going because the article is about making uh, or introducing a new style uh called a session. Doppelbach. Now, we're going to let
0: that sit there for a second. That's right. Think about that. Think about that. What would a session Doppelbach be like?
1: And you can imagine what the peanut gallery had said online about the idea of a session Doppelbach. Because reflexively, just looking at the name makes you – well, it makes somebody who is concerned with names having meaning –
0: Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine that. Words actually trying to communicate something to the same, you know, word word. so the two people get the same meaning from the same words. Right.
1: Well, and so this article is by Bob Hansen uh, from Breeze, and Breeze has a pilot brewery, and they kind of play around with a lot of different things, and they talked about that. You know, hey, we wanted to create a a new holiday beer. And it was, you know, they were brilliant it for 2021. And so this has been a while back. And they they wanted to make a Doppelbach. And, but they by the time they had figured out, oh, hey, that's what we're going to make, they said, oh, well, we only got like a couple of months in order to be able to actually make this, four in particular. And they didn't think that was going to be long enough to actually do justice to the style in terms of smoothing it out so that all that kind of alcohol flavor gets, you know, sort of hidden away. And so they wanted to make something that had all the malt feel, mouth feel, and richness of a Doppelbach, but was quicker to turn around, and also had a lower alcohol content. And that's the reason why they're saying, "Look, it's a session doppelbach. Words aside, <laughs> I get the point. Um, but what what differentiates that from a Bach? Well, okay, so that's the thing. So if you go and you look at what they're doing, because I agree, my my initial reaction was, "Wait, session doppelbock? You mean a Bach or a dunkel?" What? Um. If you go and you look at like what they're, what they're actually talking about doing, this recipe was all filled, was all really kind of focused on the idea of two things. One cold brewing, which is a technique that we've talked about. Eric Pierce has talked about it with us before about trying to do malt extraction without sugar and starch. So you get all the, the flavor without necessarily any sort of the alcohol creation. And so they, they've, Brees has been pushing it pretty hard as a way to do sort of low and no alcohol brewing. And then on top of that, also using a product of theirs that they call Malt Gems. And it's a, a new form of malt that they've created, which is essentially it's a polished malt. And so they polish away the husk and a lot of the outer material, just kind of focusing on on sort of the pure center of everything. So, if you can kind of think like you know what they do to sake rice or short grain rice is like that, essentially the same idea and so their whole notion here with the the alternator session Doppelbach was a big rich thump foam, a kind of a, a tawny orange color, so kind of think like brownish orange, and a big big malt character but not not necessarily without the or not with the large alcohol character. And so what they had brewed here was they said they did the cold uh, cold portion of the malt, which was the malt gems and Munich malt. They mashed cold, so around 50 degrees at a four to one uh, liquid to grist ratio and do that for 90 minutes and then water with about another four parts of water. And then the, the remaining part, which was just this malt gems version of their Pilsner malt, I think. Uh, they actually did a hot mash for, and they went through 120, 144, 157, 170. And then everything else was brewed as normal. And they had a original gravity of 1057 and a final gravity of 1015, which meant it came in at about 5.5%. And so after you get past the idea of, like, session Doppelbach as something that makes your brain want to kind of throw up a little bit, um, what it really more accurately is saying is, how do we get all of the richness of a Doppelbach without all the booze does that make
0: sense yeah it, it does um you know I, i'm i guess what, all i can say is if somebody from briefs is listening and you want to send us some of this so we know what the heck you're talking about feel free uh i mean it doesn't i mean I, it sounds like a great beer i think calling it a session doppelbach is i mean i would guess i wish they could have come up with a different name but then people wouldn't know what they were talking about although I still don't well, know what you're talking about as a Session Doppelbach. Well, but but if- this, this whole idea is not a new thing. I first read about it back in 1998 when there was a lady named uh, Marianne Gruber working at Brees who was uh, really behind uh, the, the cold extraction technique. And I tried it a couple times way back then. And, yeah, it definitely works. Uh, one of the things that I tried it with was Munich malt because uh, – George Fix was on board, on the bandwagon also, and he had mentioned that that was a good way to do it. So, and it it does work, you know. You do the cold steep, and then as you bring it to a boil, you get all your conversion happening. Uh, you know, it, uh, I, it, this isn't for like anything they're going to be doing commercially, is it?
1: No. Well, I mean, this was all their pilot brewery, so.
0: Yeah, right. So, so, so basically, it was an interesting test and experiment, is kind of what it comes down to, right?
1: Well, yeah, and a way to get people talking about that cold mashing technique, and also the malt gems that they're trying to, you know, talk about. So, again, session doppelbach mostly wants to break your brain in terms of the actual words, but when you get back behind the <laughs> behind the, the saying, then you go, okay, I get what you're saying. Now, yeah, I, I want, I want an uber rich Bach.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah, it it just – it would be nice if they could have come up with something to get the point across without having to confuse people, too.
1: Yeah, I don't mind confusing people. Sometimes it's fun. Um, (laughs) Huh? Yeah, exactly. So the other thing I wanted to – or one of the other pieces I want – not actually something to read but something to watch. And I thought this was particularly cool. So the uh, RTL, you know, sort of the uh, big old news agency – they've been posting various things that you can uh, dig back through from their archives. And one of the things that they posted was how did Luxembourgers brew beer in 1938? And so this is pre-World War II, obviously uh, just as everything's starting to simmer up, but this is uh, from the Musel Brewery and a documentary that they call uh, Garcon un Bock, you know, waiter one beer. And um, it's about 10 minutes long, but it's really, really cool. Even if you don't speak, You know, the language you can understand because you're brewers what's going on. And what I think is really nifty about it is, one, you get to see, like, this seems like a much bigger version of homebrewing. And also, ooh, giant spinny steam wheels of death with belts that you move around. (laughs) Um, And we'll, we'll include a link to this. But, I mean, it is really interesting to see, like, both things that haven't changed, but also things that have changed. Like the very first part of this uh, this whole thing opens up in their brewing lab, and they have Erlenmeyer flasks and beakers and all that sort of good stuff. It's like, oh, wait, science. It's still there back in the 1930s. Who knew?
0: <laughs> Amazing science in the 1930s. It's like it's been around forever.
1: Yep. But uh, it, we'll include a link to this. I highly recommend that you take you know the 10 minutes to go watch it. You know, it's kind of one of those old, old timey news, really type things. If it was narrated in English, I would imagine that you'd have, you know, and here's where Brewer Bob goes and uh, makes us beer. Say, Bob, how do you make beer? <laughs> <laughs> but it's still kind of nifty to see. And speaking of old things that are nifty to see, in this day and age, we don't really deal as much with overwhelming, all-consuming war, thankfully. But back during World War II, obviously that was a thing. And one of the big problems with is sort of forward deployments of troops is how do you keep them happy? How do you keep, you know, the morale up? And in World War II, one of those big questions was, hey, uh, how do we get beer to the guys? And over in Europe, they would do things like fill up strap-on tanks and Spitfires and fly them across from the UK to France with, you know, the tanks filled with beer. Uh But out in the Pacific, not so amenable to that. And so the British actually, by, by the end of world war two had gone and converted what had been originally like, a an icebreaker and then became like an armament ship and a mine layer. And finally at the end was an entertainment ship. They built a 50 barrel brewery on this ship designed to put out 250 barrels of beer per week and, you know, brought it out to the Pacific arena and it never the the beer hadn't been served before World War II it was over in, in Europe or was over in Pacific. But they got a chance to actually use it to keep the troops rested and relaxed while all the sort of various wind down activities and occupations were going on. So always kind of fun to see like these stories of how the hell do you get beer to troops who need it? Because war is hell and sometimes a little taste of home is a good thing. And this was, I thought, a very clever solution and one that the British Navy has been trying to crack for centuries now.
0: I think it's really, really cool, man.
1: Yeah, and of course, nowadays, we have cruise ships with breweries on them.
0: Huh. <laughs> yeah, boy, I'll bet you that would be interesting, huh, trying to brew in that.
1: Wait. <laughs> how Well, the good thing is uh, we don't have to worry about rocking the
0: kegs to incre- increase a- agitation. No, but you have to worry about everything sloshing out of the kettles while you're boiling. <laughs>
1: Well, oh, the good thing is cruise ships are remarkably steady.
0: So <laughs> I'll that, take your word for it.
1: Yeah. So that's the things in the library. Don't forget, if you have anything that you want to share with us, send us an idea at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Things that we like to read, things that we like to watch, things that help us learn. <laughs>
0: All right, with that stuff out of the way, let's get over to the brewery and talk about some beer that Drew made. Uh, and I tasted, and I'm still here to talk about it. We'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. beer, beer, beer. beer, beer,
1: beer, beer. Well, welcome back, and if you listen carefully in the background... You might be able to hear
0: blurb, 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 blurb. that's right. That's that's just my stomach.
1: <laughs> well, it's also the airlocks, although not in my brewery right now. My is currently torn down into tiny little pieces. But we are actually in the brewery and we are here to talk about what I sent down to Southern California Home Brewers Festival for the Maltos Falcons and see whether or not Denny thought I did anything correct, and also to talk about what I did in these beers. Now Denny, just to set the stage, I sent you four bottles, right, and you knew nothing about the beers except for what was on the label right
0: yeah that that 's true uh, i mean the the label and one of them kind of clued me into what was in it, but the rest of them well I guess a couple of them I, I kind of had an idea, but i didn 't really know as as you 'll hear from my, my recording here
1: yeah, and so what we 're going to do is we're going to interleave our conversation. You're going to hear Denny tasting one of four beers and then we're going to come back and talk to you about it and talk to talk about what was actually going on in that beer and what the final impressions were.
0: Okay. So here's beer number one. Drew sent me samples of some beers that he brewed for the Southern California homebrew fest. And uh, I think it's time to taste them today. Now, in the interest of complete disclosure, I probably should have tasted these a couple weeks ago when he first sent them to me, and they've been sitting in my fridge since then. So, uh any comments about carbonation, you can just ignore because it's all my fault. So, we've got four of them here, and I think that we will start with one called Verdant Mild. And I assume... And I assume that this is made with the verdant yeast, which I believe a lot of people have been using for IPAs, but uh, it's – this is made with a verdant yeast, which uh, I believe is uh, really popular for hazy IPA. Uh, It uh, is, I believe, an offshoot of uh, an English yeast that is used to make milds. So, it makes perfect sense that Drew would use it for that. So, here we go. Beer number one, Verdant Mild. Okay. Hmm. Kind of a, trying to describe that aroma. Um I, I I'm getting malt in there I'm getting something else that I just can't describe let's let's have a taste and naturally, the carbonation is low, like I said it's my fault. oh that's very tasty full bodied rich uh It's uh, got maybe just like a hint of coffee and chocolate to it. I have no idea what the recipe was for this, so uh, he'll have to tell me when we talk after this. But it's a a very, very tasty beer. It's very full-flavored. It's got enough bitterness there to back it up. It's not overly malty. Closing up the bottle here before I spill it, which I will do. Um, the aroma again, almost—it's like almost an alcohol aroma, but for a mild, it can't be. Um, aftertaste, I'm getting a lot more of that uh, kind of like coffee flavor coming out. It's—it's it's not like black coffee or anything like that, but there's there's a bit of that note in the aftertaste. I I like that beer. I may I may even have to finish that one later. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I guess it's probably better if I don't know the recipe, huh? So I'm, I'm not influenced. Yeah, that that is very very nice for a mild. I mean. I shouldn't say for a mild because milds are supposed to be full-flavored. That is a more full-flavored mild than any of mine that I've ever managed to make. So uh, good job, Drew. I'll be curious to see how you did it. I think it's entirely possible that that – London yeast uh, played uh, played a, a crucial role in the way that the, the mouthfeel comes across for that and the flavor, because the beer does not in any way come across as thin-bodied. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the uh, alcohol content of it was.
1: Okay, so, Denny, what do you think the alcohol content on that was? <sighs>
0: I, I, well, it's obviously well under five, but beyond that, uh, I, you know, I couldn't say. So you'll have to tell me. Three eight. Yeah. Great, man. It was, you know, I have to really commend you because I have never been able to make a beer with that low alcohol with that much body and flavor to it. So uh, really good job there.
1: Right. Well, and as you guessed, the naming of the beer indicates one of the twists I had put on it which was I had a pack of Verdant IPA yeast. And Verdant IPA yeast, I believe, is just kind of like a, a an isolate off of 1318, right? The London 3. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, a London ale yeast.
1: Yeah, and so I used that because it's what I had on hand that seemed both, you know, decidedly British but also decidedly not obnoxiously so. And because I wanted to have a chance for this beer to have malt to shine through. And the reason I think that you're getting the fact that it has such a wonderful malt character to it is because
0: the base malt in that beer is Chevalier. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> there you go. And that's one of the, the Chris Parrotage malts, for those of you who hadn't uh, caught on to that. Right.
1: And um, remember, the, the Chevalier was, when I tasted it just doing the, the malt teas, it was a malt bomb. It was right. it was mouth-coating. It was rich. It was rendolent. And, it, you know, I just figured as I was getting ready, and, of course, Chris... Crisp being crisp, and you know, the way they talk about it, it's like, oh, this is the original IPA malt. I had to be different, and so I wanted to use it in a
0: mild. So what what did you use for dark malts in that? Well, I'll
1: run you down the list. So for okay. this beer, this was done in my grandfather, so it was like a five-and-a-half-gallon batch. Uh, it was seven pounds of the Chevalier, a half a pound of flaked oats, uh, also to kind of help give some more bias, and mm-hmm. also I like oats. Right, right. A quarter of a pound of a Simpsons crystal, a medium crystal, so like sixty Love Bond, fifty five Love Bond, more mm-hmm. in that area. Um two ounces of dehust craft two. Which is mainly just for color,
0: right? Yep. And one ounce of crisp roasted barley. Wow. One ounce, oh, yeah, for just, again, more for the colors than anything. Although that could be a little bit maybe where that coffee flavor I was detecting. Mm-hmm. D- do you agree with that? Did you get oh, yeah, any yeah. of that out of
1: Yeah, and I also noticed that in the aroma there was kind of like – um, there there was an aroma almost of like toasted hazelnuts. Yeah, right. Um, And I'm crediting that to the Chevalier. But, uh, yeah, you think about it. This was – what is that? That's like almost 2.5% roasted malts. Which right. isn't very much, but I think the roasted barley was kind of key to give you a little bit of that kind of actual dark character uh, malt to and, it. And, and some
0: complexity
1: to it, too. Mm-hmm. Now, you want know, to guess how many IBUs were in this beer?
0: Five. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's more than that. It was pretty well balanced, actually. Fourteen. Uh, oh, four, really? Wow.
1: Fourteen IBUs. And uh, everything in one single edition, a quarter ounce of Magnum. That's it.
0: Yep, okay, that, that would that would make perfect sense, because I, I really wasn't getting any kind of hop aroma or flavor out of it, nope. uh, which I wouldn't really expect in the mild, although I guess it could be there,
1: huh? Yeah, I mean, good, but then you start to turn it over into bitter. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, the water, I I went a little more chloride-heavy for obvious reasons uh, with the water, and then uh, the mash itself was just a simple, single-infusion mash. It was, Sure. You know, I think that, it, that's all you need for that Chevalier. Yeah. It was like 152 for 60 minutes, and the beer just came together. and And I fermented it at, uh, I fermented it at 65 for about a week, and then cold crashed it for four days, and then bottled. Well, then kegged it and bottled it. And part of the reason the carbonation on that was low was not only was I doing the carbonation, the bottling at the last minute in order to get everything out at the out the door for SCHF. But it was also low because it's a uh, mild.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, and I, I thought of that as I was drinking it. It's like, oh, great, well, I can justify this. So.
1: Yeah, but you know, one of the things, and this was the beer that I, that I told you when, when, when you told me you had tasted them. This was a beer that, even at that like 3.8 percent, at a ridiculously low gravity, and you know, not a lot going on in it. That was one of those beers that I could just pour into a glass and just kind of smell for a while.
0: Yeah, great aroma to it, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so I'm always I'm always pleased when one of my milds ends up working. This is very much a, a sort of a riff on my classical mild, which is called CDJK mild, uh, but this one had enough reworked into it. I felt like it was a brand-new beast, but I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, I really did. So,
0: Okay, let's go on to the next one. Yep. Okay, the next one is one that I have really been looking forward to trying. It's made with the Bloody Butcher malted corn, and the maltster that makes that escapes me, but I'm sure Drew will tell us. Uh, He didn't label the style, but if I had to guess, I'd say it was a Saison. So let's open this baby up and check it out. I dropped this one, so God knows what's going to happen. guess I should be glad that they're not too carbonated, huh, if I'm going to drop them. Okay, here we go. Successfully opened. Pouring it into my glass. Just a bit here. Okay, close that bottle back up. Before I spill that one, I'll dropped this once. Okay, here we go. This is the Bloody Butcher. Yeah, it smells like a, maybe a Saison. Boy, now that is a really different flavor. And by different, I don't mean bad. Um... You can tell that there's something in there that isn't barley. Uh, Unlike a lot of uh, beers you have that are made with unmalted corn, uh, I'm not getting a corny flavor. I'm not getting any sweetness. Okay, there is is kind of a, a different kind of corn flavor in the aftertaste, and it's the same thing that you get in the aroma. You kind, of, you kind of think, well, that reminds me of corn, but it's not exactly corn. Um, and I'm assuming that's from the malting. Um, if this is a Saison, the Saison character is uh, pretty subdued, but I don't know if it is, so who knows. Let's have another sip here. Very, very interesting beer. Um, it'd be interesting to get some of this and play around with it. Maybe like do something like uh, an American light lager with it. Um You know, those traditionally have corn and or rice in them, but this would give it uh, a little bit more character than just your average unmalted corn would. I want to say that, it's kind of earthy, but green at the same time. Does that make any sense? You know, green as in leaves, <laughs> corn stalks maybe. I mean, who knows? But a very interesting and, and tasty beer. Uh, it would be interesting to sit down with a whole glass of this and see uh, how it changes over time and uh, what you think by the end of it. Because it's one of those beers where you go, It's interesting. Do I really like it, or am I just intrigued by it? Um, At this point, I can't answer that question for you, but I am going to finish this class. So uh, I I was, like, totally off base on that one, wasn't I?
1: Yeah, because we've talked since. This was my Bloody Butcher Cream Ale. Now, what's nice about it, though, is that you didn't call it a phenolic's.
0: <laughs> no, that that's right. No. And and I gotta say, there is no way in the world that I found that to be anything like a cream ale. Well, say so then that's your fault. Um <laughs> No, but- I mean it was it was a very good beer, some really interesting flavors into it, but it was just too too intense for a cream ale. It didn't have the lightness to it. Uh the corn just really, really dominated it.
1: Well, I was gonna say th- so this is my my um I dream of Jenny, right? Uh but in this particular case it's I dream of Jenny with Bloody Butcher. And that's the Sugar Creek uh malting company's Bloody Butcher Corn malt that we got. And you'll remember we talked to Caleb and Shockey about that uh got a couple of months back now. And so there's also one other twist on this. Do you know what the base malt was?
0: No. Hannah. Oh, that's interesting. That's the uh, the crisp uh, Pilsner malt.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I was looking around. I was going to make this beer, and I realized I didn't have enough sort of just baseline American Pilsner on hand that I'd, that I'd want to use for this. And, yeah, I like normally I would use uh, Peloton, right? And I didn't have enough on hand to be able to do it, but I had the Hannah malt. And so this is a combination of Hanna and Bloody Butcher malted corn, so European malt and corn malt, so a little different. And – it comes in at about like a 1050ish gravity, and it was nine and a half pounds of the Hannah malt and three pounds of the Bloody Butcher. So one of the things I will say is that because of the intensity of the corn malt, I think I could have actually used less. So I could have used yeah. like two pounds or you know two and a half.
0: Or, or or maybe maybe you shouldn't have tried to use it in in that style, you know. Um, I I, I just don't really think. I mean, it's like just because the word corn is in it, it doesn't mean that it's equivalent to flake corn and will produce anywhere near the same results.
1: No, I mean, what it does to me is it gives – the corn flavor that you get out of it is not sort of the sweet corn that you get out of a right. like out of flake maize. It's yeah. much more of a toasted corn and yes. um, more masa-esque. And, yeah. But I did think it was funny because you mentioned, hey, you know, what about doing this like a North American lager? And realistically, my cream ale and North American lager aren't all that separated Um, because the yeast that I used on this was diamond.
0: Okay, right. right.
1: I I did diamond lager at uh, 56 degrees for two weeks and then crashed it down.
0: Um,
1: But again, it was just crisp hannah malt, which to me gives both an earthiness and a floweriness, like almost like a honey flower type note. And then that Bloody Butcher has a really, really strong toasted corn note to it. I mean, if I was going to do this again, I would probably pull back on the Bloody Butcher a bit Uh or maybe blend Bloody Butcher with flaked maize. But right. I actually really liked the different sort of character that it gives. Um, the hopping on this is fairly straightforward. Again, knowing me, you can probably guess what the bittering hop was. Uh
0: Magnum. Yeah. Half ounce of Magnum,
1: half ounce of Magnum, and then uh, the finishing hop, which went in at like ten minutes left in the boil, like an old school sort of finishing hop, was an ounce and a quarter of Willamette.
0: Yeah, uh, that because, would
1: because
0: that, that would be that cr- would make sense. Yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think I think it was a, a very good beer, but kind of like the session Doppelbach, I don't know if it really should be a cream ale because a cream ale denotes something different, but. Mm-hmm whatever you know and i i again i think that this is one of those things where this ingredient deserves like you know a a recipe formulation all of its own Mm -hmm.
1: well i I do want to play some more with it because and uh caleb's uh corn malts are really interesting but they are really intense i do think if i was going to do this again with the corn malt i would probably do 50 50 with the flaked maize uh by the way any guess on uh, how big of a beer that was uh, I don't know, maybe
0: 5%. 5-2. Yeah, okay. That You know, that that makes sense. I just, you know, I didn't even pay any attention to that, to tell you the truth, as I was drinking it. Uh, I, I generally don't even think about that unless it really whaps me over the head with alcohol. There you go. Okay, we're on to the next one. Okay, the next one is made with the new Lalamand Dry Saison Yeast. Uh, I believe this is a non-diastatic strain, but I'm sure Drew will correct me on that. This is one we've been getting a lot of questions about, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this is like, too. I didn't drop that one, so I didn't have to worry about it spewing everywhere. All right, we'll try this baby now. Close that bottle back up. I guess it was just a shadow. I could have sworn I saw a bug in the bottom of that, but I didn't really. Okay, so this is the saison made with the Lalamand dry saison yeast, and uh, this is Drew's saison. Exp- uh, am I getting drunk already? This is Drew's saison experimental recipe. Uh, pretty straightforward. I've had this beer a number of times, so let's see what this yeast does for it. I kind of like that. It has a hint of sweetness to it up front. But then the phenolics come in both the, in the flavor and in the aroma. It's not as strongly phenolic as you get with uh, some, maybe some other Saison yeasts. Let's have another sip here. Yeah, but but it is there. It definitely comes in mid-palate um, on the retronasal. Yep, you definitely are getting the phenolics on the retronasal. nasal. Uh, so I would say that if you've been looking for a dry saison yeast, this one seems to suit my tastes better than some of the other uh, dry saison yeasts that I've I've tried uh, beers that were made with. Um, I, so I would you know, again, if you're looking for a dry saison yeast, I would say get out there, give this one a shot, and see if it fits your tastes. Um, it's not going to be like over-the-top Saison-y. I do don't think it's going to remind you of DuPont or anything like that. But uh, it does make a really nice beer here. And given the ease of use, I think that it's well worth your consideration. So uh, let's let's get this one out of the way here.
1: All right. So as you uh, correctly surmised, yes, that is my Saison Experimental, which, uh, yeah, I don't know how many times you've had that beer now, but good Lord, I can't even count the number of times I've had it. Yeah,
0: more than a few, for sure. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. but And yes, it was made with the new Lallemand uh, farmhouse yeast, which is their non diastaticus Saison-ish strain. And we're going to have the Lallemand folks back on the show in order to talk about it some more now that I've had a chance to play with it. Now, remember, diastaticus strains are a real huge concern for professional breweries. They're far less of a concern for non-professional breweries. And so, to me, I think what's more interesting is... Does it deliver on the saison characteristic more so than, hey, this is non-diastaticus? So, Denny, in your estimation, does it deliver on Cezanne?
0: Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, as, I, as I said, it kind of like is uh, milder, I guess I would say, uh, but... Yeah, you it know, it's not the, the heavy slap you in the face phenolics, but it, it was definitely recognizable as a Saison and a very good one. Yeah, and
1: if you if you're looking at it in comparison to say some of the other things that are out there in terms of dried Saison yeast, now most of the dried Saison yeast that are out there on the market are all sort of thirty seven eleven French Saison types, you know, um very tire. Uh and I'm not really a huge fan of that yeast as just a standalone saison thing, and so this one to me actually gives me some of the characteristics. It's missing something, like it's it's missing a certain extra little edge to it. I think in order to be like, oh, hey, that's Dupont.
0: But and, and that's yeah, and that is exactly what I said too, man. Uh, I, I detected the same thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a certain level of dryness that I'm expecting. Versus what I get out of there, there, yes, it does have a, a subdued pro, a profile in terms of the phenolics. But then again, I tend to brew my saisons in such a way to do that some of that anyway. And so, again, this recipe is eight and three quarters pounds of pilsner. In this case, it was Peloton. Uh, half a pound of a wheat malt and a pound of sugar. And then a half ounce of what hop for bittering? <laughs> well, of course, Magnum. Yep. A uh, Half ounce of Magnum for bittering. And in this particular case, no real water adjustments other than this, uh, acid for pH. But when I do the fermentation, it's the same thing. I chilled it down as much as I could with my my sila, got that into the fermenter, used the fermenter to knock the temperature of the wort all the way down to 63. Pitched the yeast in there, let it ride for a day at 63. I did this with no foil, uh, I did this with no airlock on it, so uh, closed or open fermentation with foil. Let that ride at 63 for a day and then gradually bumped it up to 66 and then let that ride out for about two weeks there and crash it down, pulled it over and put it into a keg. Um, it's arguably the easiest thing I make and something I can make in my sleep. And uh, it just works like a charm. And in this particular case, I think the uh, I think this strain delivers more on Saison than a lot of the other ones I've had in terms of the dry strains.
0: So. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I haven't have tried a lot of the beers made with the dry strains, but I've tried probably two or three other ones. And this one is the most Saison-like of anything that I've tried.
1: There you go. All right. Ready for one last beer?
0: Yeah, I guess so, man. Here we go. Okay. And last, but definitely not least, we have something here called Seventh Talon IPA. Uh, I have no idea what's in this one. But it's an IPA and I like that. So let's pop this baby open and see what we get. Okay. Oh, here we go. Okay. Let's see what I get for a room. Oh, this one has carbonation. How about that? Oh, man. I'm getting dank. I'm getting. Mmm, I'll tell you, the aroma is right up my alley. I'll have to tell you that. Boy, that's that's nice. I don't know if there's Simcoe or what in here, but uh, I'm, I I'm really like the way this smells, so let's have a taste. I thought... That's very interesting. Let's have another taste here. You get something almost earthy up front, um, mid-palate. You get a little bit of that dank funkiness. And then, again, it, it finishes a little bit earthy. Um, wonder what yeast he used for this. Quite good. Quite good. Uh, uh, intriguing because I cannot figure out what all of those flavors and aromas are, which may be my problem. Um, mm. it, it, it makes you keep wanting to go back for another sip. Uh, partially because it tastes really good, and partially because you're going, what is that? I need to figure this out. Yeah. That's very nice, and I'm going to be really curious to find out what he did with it. Uh, This is a good IPA. I, I would like to have a little bit more malt to it. Yeah, I mean, I would suspect that Drew was going for the San Diego style and West Coast IPA in this one. Uh, I I would like to have a little bit more rounded malt flavor to go with the bitterness, and I'm actually getting a bit of... uh, Uh, of astringency, which is, you know, from the hops, not through any flaw of the beer. But I think that uh, maybe just a touch more malt. I'm willing to bet he didn't use any crystal in this. And uh, for my tastes, I like at least a little bit of a, of a lighter crystal to kind of like round out the flavor, but you know, that's not going to stop me from drinking the rest of this bottle when I'm done here. So, uh, Thanks for the beers, Drew. I am appreciative and impressed that you got them up here to me. And uh, let's have a chat now. And you can tell me what the heck it was I was drinking.
1: <laughs> well, I'll start it off by saying that yes, you're right. I did not use any crystal malt.
0: Did you use anything besides just base malt?
1: Yes, I did. So this was kind of this was me working towards that idea of what we've been talking about, like sort of the. The new West Coast, or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, not really San Diego, but sort of not really old school West Coast IPA, not New England, and so I called it Seven Talon because of the hop choices that I made in here. But yeah, this came in at about six point eight percent alcohol. Um, it was a 68 beer, and the base malt in it was the crisp plumage Archer.
0: Yep, I love that stuff.
1: Yeah, which to me has that very kind of uh where the Chevalier was like all malt bomb. The Plumage Archer was much more kind of uh, uh, crackers and, and biscuits. And then it was augmented. That was 14 pounds of the Plumage Archer, augmented with a three-quarters of a pound of uh, Root shoots Genie Munich. So about Boy. 95% pale, 5% Munich.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. I, I can see that. Uh, again, I, I could have used a little bit more of something besides the pale. But, uh, it was a darn good beer. And there was, let me see, you used, you said you used the talus hops in there, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. So the reason why it's called Seventh Talon, other than being a beer from the Maltos Falcons, is because it uses a lot of Idaho 7 and a lot of talus. Right
0: yeah and i think maybe talus is where i was like detecting some woodiness or something because mm-hmm. i've got i know the first time i used them i couldn't really decide if i liked them or not and it kind of took me a while to become accustomed to the character yeah so, they're kind of like
1: a west coast version of
0: northern brewer in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah i guess that's a that's an interesting way to put it you know uh but you know what what the heck it, it didn't suck i Took the rest of that bottle and finished it when I got done uh, doing all the recording.
1: There you go. Well, And so do you want to guess how many nominal IBUs it came out to be?
0: No, because I want to at least have it here in front of me so I could taste it again to do that.
1: Yeah, it came out at about 80 IBUs. So 1060 of Gravity, 80 IBUs, nominally. Remember, the IBU is a lie. Um, right. You want to guess what the Bittering Hop was? Chinook? No, Warrior.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I guess with you, I should have known that.
1: Yes, my IPAs almost always get Warrior as the Bittering Hop, and that was one ounce of Warrior and then uh, at 60 minutes, and then one ounce of Idaho 7 at five minutes. Right. So a little bit of a throwback there. And then a combination each of Idaho 7, Talus, and um, the – or actually, sorry, yeah, two ounces of Idaho 7, an ounce of Talus, and one ounce of a Lupamax Mosaic, that's the YVH-ish, cryo-ish hop, you know, the concentrated hop right. product. Right, right, right. And those were whirlpooled at 180 degrees. And then after allowing fermentation for seven days, cold crashed, and then dry hopped for two days at 40 degrees with a combination of another two ounces of Idaho 7, one ounce of the Lupamax uh, Mosaic, and one ounce of Talus. And so. Okay. You know, trying to uh, trying to really bridge Talus to me gives you a little bit of that, like I said, West Coast with Northern Brewer mosaic obviously gives you that sort of fruit bomb thing, and to me Idaho Seven is a little bit more classical, and so yeah. trying uh, trying to give uh, trying to give a, a little nice broad spectrum there in the hops, um, and also playing around with the fact that like the reason Idaho Seven is in there so early is Idaho Seven is also high in those survivable compounds, so doing that and then I uh, I fermented this with the your favorite dry yeast.
0: <laughs> bry 97
1: exactly B- br459 what no <laughs>
0: <laughs> man uh, most people listening to this are not old enough to remember that
1: yeah i know i'm barely old enough to remember that yeah <laughs>
0: well, i'm plenty old enough <laughs>
1: but to, to me I, I i thought it was i thought this was a good first shot at my goal it needs refinement um but i was happy with how it how it came out i will tell you this like when you At least for me, when I poured the first glasses off the keg, it came screaming out of the glass in terms of the hop aroma. Right, and it was just like, oh, hello, yeah. And it was it was that combination of you know bright orange and blueberries and a little bit of diesel and you know that little bit of woody and mintiness. And so it was it was just like holding the glass at arm's length and it just kind of came running out of the glass. So, I mean, if I'd had a little more time, I probably would have given a little more time to give me some some more separation, some more clarity. But overall, I was still very pleased with how this came out. Now, you had obviously said, hey, you know, I want some more crystal because that's your taste. What do you think you would have done differently with the hops?
0: Uh, You know, I'd have to sit down and look at it all through. Uh, I, I think that maybe to see, some extent maybe like the hop character was a bit muddled you know but again you know I, I i can't really tell you for sure without sitting down with some i might have left out the talus really? but i don't know i it's the kind of thing where i would have to make it uh, a, a couple times at least two or three times at least changing things around before i really got to the point where i really knew what was going on with it
1: yeah i mean i was happy with the overall delivery of it but it wasn't it wasn't perfect. Uh but we'll get there. Now you had those four beers. You had the Verdant Mild, you had the Saison, you had the Blade Butcher Cream Ale, and then you had the seventh talent IPA. Of those four, what was your favorite?
0: It would either be the mild or the IPA. Yeah.
1: Now I I got those kegs back from festival. You know which one was kicked?
0: <laughs> the mild?
1: No. The IPA. Oh really? Yeah the IPA was kicked and that, that's not too surprising. Yeah but you know it was sad to me the mild was actually the one that got returned to me half full heathens.
0: You know, and that's, that is so often the case with the mild, uh, I posted something on Facebook about milds recently and somebody who owned a brewery said, yeah, I'll start making more of them for the six people a year who want them. Yep. <laughs> no,
1: I mean, it's, I mean, it's a real problem, but here we are. Um, yeah. and to me, I always make a mild for something like a day long festival anyway, so that, there's a nice low alcoholic beer to drink while in between drinking beers. Right. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I will always make it for that sort of situation. And the people out there who appreciate it, appreciate it. So mm-hmm. uh, I hope everybody had fun listening to us go through uh, these four beers. I would love to hear what you all think about the recipes or what you might do differently or what your own experiences have been. So don't forget, you can always drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. dot com.
0: Okay, so I guess it's time to get this thing over with. We'll be right back to take care of that. Yakima Chief Hops is a proud supporter of the global homebrewing community. We believe that homebrewers are at the true heart of craft beer. YCH is dedicated to supplying the brewing hobbyists, the homebrew side hustlers, and the late-night garage brewers with the same cutting-edge quality hop products as the brewers working on a 90-barrel tank. Yakima Chief is pleased to introduce the latest product in hop innovation right out of the R&D lab, Cryopop Original Blend. Combining their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with groundbreaking lab analysis, they've engineered a hop pellet packed with the most beer-soluble compounds to bring a true pop of tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas. Learn more at YakimaChief.com. Welcome back, everybody. We have a quick tip and something other, and then we're out of here. Take it, Drew. All right, so the quick tip for this week
1: is uh, go clean up. And by go clean up, I mean go get rid of old crap you no longer need in your brewery. And to that point, you guys heard me earlier in the show say, well, my brewery's closed down right now, and it is. Like, literally. uh, I have nothing in the garage that is my brewery because I'm doing work on it and putting in some new new electrical and all that sort of fun stuff so I can, you know, better have a functioning space. And while I was doing that, of course, that meant I had to pack up the brewery. And as we all know, if you've ever been an adult, packing up any time over the age of about, say, 30 is a giant pain in the fatukas. <laughs> yeah. And so I highly encourage you to do exactly what I did, which is go through, and particularly for me, like I was looking through all these ingredients I had, and go, oh, I meant to brew with that. That's from 2016. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I just went through all my malt bins and did something similar. Yeah. So take the
1: opportunity. You don't have to go and pack up all your brewery, but take the opportunities that are given to you and actually go and make some changes uh, and go through your stuff. You know, you'd be surprised. Uh, yeah. Now, granted, my brew supplies still look like I'm a homebrew shop, but I'm not as much of a homebrew shop anymore. So take the time, clean up, clear out the chaff. What I actually find that you will what I think you'll actually find after you do that is you have a better ability to be able to focus on what you've got and what you can make use of.
0: Yep, I agree, man. Uh get the get the chaff out of the way so that you can use the wheat.
1: Right. And of course, speaking of the chaff, kind of, maybe. I don't think that's actually a wood wood turning term. Uh something <laughs> other than beer, you know, because of course life does not exist just in the beer glass. Uh, One of the new YouTube channels I've been following is a guy named David Admondson, and he is a woodworker in Maine, and he makes these videos. It's him taking these giant hunks of wood, like usually like tree burls, right, and putting them on a giant lathe and turning them and using chisels and knives and various other tools to turn them into glorious works of wooded art. And what's best about it is there's some little light music in there. There's the noise of the machinery. There's no obnoxious talking or anything else. It's just him turning wood and turning this big, ugly lump of something into something really cool by the end of like 10 to 20 minutes. And it's really just nice and soothing. So if you want to watch a craftsman at work and go, I have no clue what he just did and I don't understand how he got there. I highly recommend the David Abinson channel on YouTube. Uh, Wood turning in Maine.
0: Wood turning in Maine, man. You know, I could almost watch that.
1: You should. I think you'd enjoy it. You know, yeah. Because it, again, it's just very, very soothing. It's also very puzzling. You look at like where he's starting and what he's doing. And you're like, I don't get it. Where are you going with this, man? And then by the time he gets done with it, you're like, Whoa,
0: really? You know, I've, I've watched shows like that in the past, so maybe I'll take a, a look at this one. When I get done watching the other 2,000 things on my list.
1: There you go. All right, out of here.
0: All right, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at expbrewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me on the AHA discussion forum. You can find me on the uh, brew house in the beer garden. Or is it the Beer Garden and the Brew House? No, it's the Brew House. That's the website. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm just all over the place. You can find me on Facebook, too. So if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, and feel free to do that, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And we've got a phone number, too. You can always give us a call, leave us a voicemail, text us at 626-765-1-A-L. That's 626-765-1253. And if you don't want to send us a message, you can use the same number. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.